hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everybody, this is John Bewin. I just want to take a second here at the top to say a big thanks to those of you who said nice things to us about our ongoing series, Seeing White. It is ongoing. This is not a send-off of any kind. I just want to make that clear. Especially those of you who've told your friends or shouted about the series on social media or on listservs or your blog or whatever. Thanks to if you've subscribed to the show or done a rating and review that helps to increase our visibility on iTunes or other podcast apps. The response to the project has been really encouraging. Needless to say, we think everybody should hear the series. We've got a number of episodes still to come, and I promise toward the end of Seeing White, we will get to those questions about how to respond, what we collectively should do in the face of what we're learning here. For now, Seeing White, Part 10. Throughout the series, we've talked about different ways in which whiteness got made and defined socially, politically, scientifically. But courts in the United States have sometimes been faced with the question, too. Legally, who is white and who isn't? With real stakes, including who gets to be a U.S. citizen. Remember, our national mythology today talks about a multiracial, multiethnic America. But the Naturalization Act of 1790 declared that citizenship could be granted to, quote, any alien being a free white person. This country's first Congress said you can come from anywhere in the world and have full citizens' rights as long as we see you as white. But they don't really decide, well, what does that mean? This is Tehama Lopez Bunyasi. She's a political science professor at George Mason University. So this kind of rather abstract notion gets meted out, both kind of in the streets, but also in the courts. Back then, the founders of the new United States thought they had a pretty clear idea of who they'd deem white and who they wouldn't. But when it came to it, local judges had to make the call on who could become a citizen. The outcomes were rather haphazard, and the arguments, both by the petitioner and then also by you know, the courts, are all over the place. They, they change over time. At the end of the Civil War, the 13th Amendment banned slavery. And at that point, the right to become a naturalized citizen got extended to people of African descent. So now if you were deemed white or black, you could become a citizen. The one-drop rule, a holdover from the construction of race designed for the interests of slave owners, clarified the line between white and black. That's how it was for the next few decades. But around 1900, we start to see a lot more immigrants to the U.S., many of them not obviously white or black. They see that a key step to building a life in the U.S. is to be a citizen. People did not throng to the border saying, I'm black, let me into white supremacist early 20th century America. 
the much more desirable path to citizenship was whiteness. So you saw more and more people arguing their whiteness before state courts, and more judges making those haphazard rulings on who to let into the club. Congress under Theodore Roosevelt decided it was time to intervene and make whiteness a federal matter. The Naturalization Act of 1906 declared that immigrants must make their case for citizenship before a federal court. If you want to enjoy full rights in the U.S., a federal judge needs to say you're white. At this point, I'm going to turn things over to reporter Audrey Quinn. She produced this episode for us. Audrey tells the story of how the definition of whiteness fell into the hands of the Supreme Court of the United States in two cases in the 1920s. Bhagat Singh Thind was born in 1892 in the Indian state of Punjab. It's the heart of the country's Sikh community. His family is of a prominent caste. His dad's a spiritual leader. Thin goes to college in India. He's this budding Sikh philosophy buff. And a move to the U.S. starts feeling like his next obvious option. He'd grown up reading American authors like Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, the so-called armchair Orientalists. You have to imagine he figured that if America celebrated men like those, men who aspired after Eastern religions, then it had to be a good place for him. He's got the real deal Eastern religion. So in 1913, he comes to the U.S. There's only a couple thousand other East Indians here, but he starts trying to make a life for himself. He finds work, he goes to grad school at Berkeley, he joins the army. And eventually, Bhagat Singh Thind does become this esteemed religious philosopher in America. And that's how his son David knew him. He never talked about anything about the Supreme Court case. Bhagat Singh Thind had a devoted following as a spiritual guru. He was Sikh himself, but his sermons were more non-denominational. He gave lectures all over the country. Local newspapers would write about this handsome bearded man in the turban who filled their auditoriums for weeks straight. David's mother used to take him to the lectures his father gave, crowds of thousands. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> Everybody loved him, and they listened very attentively to what he had to say, uh, especially his disciples, and, uh, you know, basically to the letter. You can tell David really looked up to his dad. Bhagat Singh Thind was gone most of the time. He traveled the country with his preachings almost nine months a year. But David says knowing how much his father meant to other people, that made it okay. And when Bhagat Singh was home with the family in West Hollywood, he was really there. We went on walks uh, almost every afternoon uh, as when I was a child. We went to the beach quite often when he was here in the summer. The whole family went down. He loved the ocean. Did he ever talk about his time in the forestry or in the army? No. He never talked about, I had no idea he was even in the army. And, you know, he came here, there was no employment here except in the lumber mills in uh, Washington and Oregon. So he, he worked for almost eight years in a town, uh, it's called Astoria, Oregon and it was known as Hindu Alley. All this was discovered after I visited three national archives and, and got the information on his life. Bhagat Singh Thind died in 1967, and in 2006, David Thind had started writing a book about his father. Like, he already thought his dad was a big deal, lecturing to crowds of thousands and all. But researching the book in those national archives, he also finds a man who not only had withstood years of hard labor, had been the first Sikh to keep his turban and beard in the U.S. Army, 
but also had been at the center of a case which set out to clarify, once and for all, who was white in America. Thin first applied for citizenship in Washington state in 1918, wearing his army uniform. He got it, but the court revoked his citizenship four days later when an immigration officer argued that Thin was not white. Two years later, an Oregon judge declares him a citizen again. The same immigration agent objects. This Oregon judge holds his ground in Thin's favor. The case goes to the Circuit Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court. And it's worth noting here that the main question in the case is not whether it's okay to have racial restrictions on citizenship. The question stated on the court document reads simply this. Is a high caste Hindu, this is referring to thinned Hindu equaled Indian at the time, is a high caste Hindu of full Indian blood a white person? But just before Thin's case goes to trial in 1923, another case comes up before the Supreme Court, someone else who is arguing to be classified as white. Takao Ozawa is from Japan, but he'd been in the U.S. his entire adult life. Like Thind, Ozawa realizes to get ahead in the U.S., he needs to become a citizen. And also like Thind, he realizes that to do this, he needs to prove his whiteness. Here's Tahama Lopez-Bunyasi again. In his legal brief, he talks about how he recognizes um, the U.S. government and does not recognize the Japanese government. He does not affiliate himself with any kind of Japanese civic groups. He has his kids go to so-called American schools and American churches. He talks about being an English speaker, an American English speaker, and not only teaching his kids English, but teaching them monolingually to speak English. It's interesting to me just how much erasure there is in his case of, of his Japanese heritage. Assimilating into this idea of Americanness, really, but really it's, it's whiteness in particular, is very much at the heart of his argument and many people's arguments. He's really talking about being a patriot, but he also, in his argument, says that, well, if you want to talk about somebody who's white, look at the color of my skin. Especially look at the, you know, think about the parts of my skin that are typically covered by clothing. That's rather light. It's, it's such a literal argument that he's making. It is a literal argument. But, you know, I think that that's the kind, I think a literal argument about the lightness of skin color, in many ways, it seems to be sort of one register for whiteness is how light one is. So what, what's the ultimate ruling in the Ozawa case? The Supreme Court says that, well, yes, okay, yeah, you're light-skinned. We get that. Um, however, we believe that to be white means to really be Caucasian. And clearly, you are not that. And so the ruling kind of takes up um, the science of the day and says, well, to be white means to be Caucasian. And here we get back to Bogatzing Thind. Now, Thind is no Takao Ozawa. He makes no claims at being a great assimilator. He's kept his own look, his own religion. But in the Ozawa ruling that white equals Caucasian, Thind sees an opportunity. Thind was able to rely on what the court had just said months earlier. This is Ian Haney Lopez. He's a professor at the UC Berkeley School of Law. He said, look, anthropologists classify me as Caucasian. Caucasians are white. Naturalize me. Slam dunk. It seemed an incredibly easy case in the spring of 1923. 
than to saying, hey, I'm like literally Caucasian, like my people are from the Caucasus Mountains. His lawyer adds that not only that, Thin's people were the conquering people of India, the upper caste, and they are pure. The lawyer doubles down. The argument is Thind is not only Caucasian, he knows how to look down on his so-called inferiors also. Here's what Thind's lawyer put for the closing argument. Quote, The high caste Hindu regards the aboriginal Indian mongoloid in the same manner as the American regards the Negro, speaking from a matrimonial standpoint. The caste system prevails in India to a degree unsurpassed elsewhere. With this caste system prevailing, there was comparatively a small mixture of blood between the different castes. His, his lawyer said that? Yeah. I don't know anything about that. This is Bhagat Singh Thin's son David again. He says the argument doesn't fit with what he knew of his father. This was a guy who set up scholarships for poor Indian immigrants. That doesn't sound like a very strong argument. Now, we don't know whether the lawyer's arguments reflected how Thind really felt. And the desire to become a citizen and use every possible avenue to get there isn't necessarily racist. But the arguments that his lawyer uses, heard in 2017, do seem kind of racist. But Matthew Huey says the argument makes sense if you consider what Thind was dealing with. Huey's a sociologist at the University of Connecticut. I think he was trying to make a bargain with white supremacy by saying, I'm not like the others. I have a culture that is superior, and I fit with you also, superior white people. Therefore, I should be taken into the fold. If we think about whiteness as a cult, then that's what he was trying to do. He was applying for membership and bring me in. I'm supposed to be a part. I am pure. I am better. Um, I am great, and I'm going to only add to the greatness of, of this nation, right? Yeah, I mean... I also have to think that, that he was doing what he could, or what he saw as within his means to do to argue his case. Yeah, I don't know what else you would have tried to do as a man of Indian descent. I mean, he, he, it looks very methodical and purposeful and everything. That I, I've done all these things that I'm supposed to do, and I'm appealing to your own white scientists' views of, and white philosophers' views on what race is. And yeah, it is very, very troubling when we look at the ways he was pathologizing and attributing dysfunction to other groups and other people. But again, he was using the logic and the rhetoric of white supremacy to make a claim to, to join whiteness, and it backfired on him. So the court in Finn's case said, you may be Caucasian, we'll concede that, but we have deep doubts about science. Ian Haney Lopez from UC Berkeley School of Law again. And everybody knows a dark brown Hindu is not a white person. And this is really an extraordinary moment because here you have the court saying, science has in some ways betrayed us because it's including all sorts of people that we don't believe are white. So we're going to jettison science and we're going to say the only people who are white in terms of being able to join the country are the sorts of people that we as a country believe are white. And this moment crystallizes that white is really something that's socially constructed. It's produced by cultural practices. Whiteness is what the common man says it is. Like, what, what is that saying? This is the significance of the thin decision. It said we were happy to rely on science when science confirmed our prejudice. But when science challenges our prejudice, we're out. 
we're going to abandon science and continue with a racial project with no scientific justification whatsoever. That sounds so, familiar. Yeah. So law helps create and maintain racial oppression. It did so before the advent of any sort of race science. And it did so once race science repudiated the idea that there were biological distinctions between humans that could rank order humanity in terms of superior and inferior groups. The Supreme Court case didn't just backfire on Thind. About 50 Indian Americans before him had been successful at getting citizenship. After the Supreme Court's ruling, they all lost it. They lost land if they owned it, they lose businesses. The women married to them lose their citizenship too, even the ones deemed white. One prominent Indian American businessman commits suicide. Over a third of all East Indians in America leave the country. But this cycle of logic that American equals white and whiteness needs to be protected, it's not limited to the Ozawa and Thind cases. Matthew Huey is the sociologist from the University of Connecticut. He says we see it again in the Obama birther controversy, in the immigration debate over Mexican immigrants, and again in a recent Supreme Court case. So let's let's take a look at the Fisher case. This is Fisher versus the University of Texas from 2016. Abigail Fisher, a white woman, had applied to the University of Texas Austin and she didn't get in. But she believed worse students than her who were black and Latino were getting in and taking her spot. So she sued the school for racial discrimination. Her lawyer said people of color got in who had lower grades than her and this is an example of anti uh, white bias, quote-unquote reverse racism. Right? And this is an example of why affirmative action is racist against white people, right? And this is what I find remarkable about this case, is that we're not post-racial, we're post-evidence. Here's the evidence. The year Abigail Fisher got rejected, the University of Texas Austin did accept 47 students with lower grades and achievement points than her. But only five of those 47 students were black or Latino. 42 of the students who got in with lower scores than her, who took her quote-unquote spot, were white. Her lawyer's case, I think, makes sense if you don't think about it or don't look at the evidence. Because when you look at the evidence, what's up with those other 42? Well, they were white. They did get in. So the actual evidence shows that there was bias, but it was a pro-white bias. But that doesn't stop this case from going to the Supreme Court not just once, but twice. Behold the power of whiteness. Huey says the only way the court's decision to even hear the Fisher case makes sense is if you think of enrollment at UT Austin as something white students are entitled to. Only then is it cause for concern that any lower-scoring Black and Latino students got in at all over this white woman, regardless of all the white students who also got in over her. It's like in Thind and Ozawa, where citizenship was considered a de facto white resource, one that's worth defying logic or even the court's own previous ruling to protect. So I think the similarities with Ozawa, Thind, and Fisher, right, are similar because they all exhibit the use of a logic that whiteness is somehow under attack, is aggrieved, and needs remedy through the court. And those, those two cases in 1922-23 were about protecting those resources, very explicitly, white resources, political resources, social resources, right? 
the protection of these resources is no different when you look at the, the Fisher case, because it's about educational resources. In the end, the one thing that Bhagat Singh Thind kept defending was America. He finally got citizenship in 1936 after a new law was passed that gave citizenship to all veterans of World War I. And the fact that he never shared any of his struggle with his son David seems to suggest either it really wasn't that big of a deal to him, which seems hard to imagine, or that it didn't fit with the image of America he'd held so closely, that it was a place that would trust and respect him. But regardless of Finn's battles over citizenship and whiteness, he never stopped being a believer in the idea of America. My mother and father went back to India in 1963 for the first time and, you know, traveled all through India giving lectures on, on what America meant, means to him. He felt his teachings could be best given here in this country of all, any place in the world because of, of it's a new country, it's a, a receptive country, and it's a mixed country of, of all kinds of religions and people. Two years later, 1965, Thind was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now we shall all sit straight, hands on the knees. He's giving five weeks of lectures in a hotel ballroom, complete with breathing exercises like these, which were said to make you look 25 years younger. A reporter from the Tulsa Tribune interviewed the visitor. She asked him about his return trip to India, and he mentioned to her the caste system there. The caste system that his lawyer had bragged about four decades earlier before the Supreme Court. It seems to be going away, Finn told the reporter. But just like in the U.S., you can't force the people considered white to care about the darker-skinned people overnight. And then he went back to the hotel ballroom in his turban and beard and gave another lecture before another crowd of Oklahomans. The lecture was titled, How to Live Triumphantly on This Earth. Audrey Quinn. Hey, Chandra, it's John. How you doing? Hey, man. How you doing? I'm doing all right. You? Chilling, man. I'm just trying to live triumphantly on this earth. I think you're, I think you're succeeding, I would say. <laughs> That's good, man. At least somebody does. <laughs> he is back. Chandrai Kumanika, media scholar, now at the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University, activist, artist, podcaster, our conversations are a frequent feature of the Seeing White series as Chenjirai helps me unpack the stories we're telling. One thought I have, Chenjirai, in listening to uh, Audrey's story about the thinned and uh, Ozawa cases is there's a point, the point that you made um, in one of our conversations in a previous episode about how recent it is that we, as a, as a broad society, that it's you know, been a mainstream idea more or less, that we are a multiracial, multi-ethnic country and that that's, right, that's who we are and we're happy about that, right? It's really a post-civil rights movement the last 50 years or so out of a 240-year history of the country. Before that, way into the 20th century, being an American, at least a full-fledged, regular, non-marginal American, meant being white. 
<laughs> exactly. Like this was recent. People act like you know the Voting Rights Act got passed in 1777. You know, and like in 1778, Barack got elected, and you know, it's, come on, <laughs> or like, or like, or like 18 six, or like 1866. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. But no, nah, this wasn't. It was way later, and we're still arguing about voting rights now. You know, I mean, it's it's the 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 voting practices right now of the GOP are explicitly racial. This has been ruled on, determined by so many courts. Including here in North Carolina, where I live, where a court now has repeatedly said that the redistricting process was designed with surgical precision to minimize the power of black voters. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, for a large part of this country, and I would argue to some extent now, whiteness is a prerequisite for both human and civil rights. And it was offered explicitly to lower class Europeans and other groups. Uh, well, yeah, it was offered to explicitly to, to lower class Europeans in America. And as part of a po sort of divisive political project, as we've been talking about, and other mm -hmm. groups like, you know, Japanese and Indian folks that were have tried to get access to whiteness, they weren't really offered it, but they just astutely recognized what the order of the day was and how they had to position themselves. But even if you had really strong arguments like then did this sort of whiteness, could they could use this idea to say, actually, no, we don't think you should have rights. And it doesn't really matter why. So, right, right. We just don't see you as white, plain and simple, uh, you know, and it's poignant or uh, I don't know what the right word is for it. It's certainly telling that uh, Bhagat Singh thinned uh, or his lawyer thought that the way to persuade the U.S. Supreme Court to declare him white was to say that he was from a high caste of India, that he was of pure blood, and that, and so tellingly, he says, I look down on the, quote, aboriginal Indian mongoloid in the same manner as the American regards the Negro. Oh, where do you, where do you even start with that? Well, sadly, Hearing that it reminds me of Gandhi, because apparently in certain parts of his life, Gandhi was talking that way, too. But, you know, I guess uh, mm. in, in the long run, he got better. Uh, mm. But, uh, yeah, what's interesting to me is that then who was living in India under a system that Americans like to separate themselves from. He looked at our system and said. Oh, he recognized it. There was a recognition like, oh, yeah, this is a caste system. I know what this is. You know? <laughs> and I know where I am in my caste system. So maybe I can, you know, take advantage of that. And so one way to look at that is through the lens of his personal character. And it becomes like this moral failing where he was willing to use this racist concept for his personal gain. But I think it's there's something bigger than that. And it's about what kind of legal, cultural, and economic system incentivizes you to make that kind of argument. You know, that's the, that's the Well, that's the kind of argument you have to make in a way. You do have to make that kind of argument in order to achieve, try to strategically and tactically get something like full humanity, right? You, you know, you have to become a white man. You have to be, you have to enter into the only category of personhood that had full rights. And so... And there's a cost when you use that, though, because you're reproducing that in legal precedent. And 
in a lot of ways, law is one of the places where things then diffuse into the culture and seem natural and normal and justified. You know, that rhetoric of the law is powerful. And it says a lot, again, about sort of where where we were. This is less than 100 years ago. And so even going back to that conversation you and I had in, what was it, part four, where you had the Thomas Jefferson stuff, and we were sort of having this discussion about what is the the more dominant, the true dominant character of the United States throughout its history? Is it a white supremacist country or a, you know, all men are created equal country? And uh, this story is not comforting in that regard at all, right? Because here you have a guy, hmm. the Supreme Court could have said to him, don't bring those ugly arguments in here, <laughs> right? If this were the Jeffersonian uh, uh, all men are created equal country, but that's not what they said. They they rejected him for entirely other reasons, namely that he wasn't white or white enough. Um, yeah, it's like back to our little debate, right? Or it was it wasn't really a debate because I think probably <laughs> I wasn't necessarily <laughs> pushing back too hard yeah. against you. You man. weren't like this just sort of you know raving, foaming patriot. Uh, I sh- I should have, you know, it would yeah. have been more fun maybe yeah. if I anyway. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, you know, so it's back to our conversation about the character of America. And as I said before, I think nations, I think that the idea of a national character, no matter what you say it is, is a fiction. I don't think nations have characters. Nations are so complex, hundreds of millions of people, different cultures. It's like to say that a nation has a character is always a political project that we should be suspicious of. Yeah. But, well, come on, but, in, indulge me in my conversation about. No, nah, I mean I'm what saying is the so national if, but character. If, no, no, no. I, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah I mean I if people want to do, but if people want to go there, which you know, that I mean, while I think that the idea of a national character is is not really something that can withstand scrutiny, it's mm-hmm. that's a dominant narrative about our in our country, right? In this country, it's like. Yeah, it's there all the time. We have a certain national character. It's good. It's present. So it's a real thing. And my thing is like, maybe I I think a lot of people who are really feel that maybe should come over to my side because, you know, I, I feel like our like America doesn't really have a character. But then when you see evidence like this, it's kind of like, ah, maybe it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty pretty persuasive. <laughs> so and and another. Um, theme that we have talked about at several points in the project too is this shifting nature of whiteness and its arbitrariness and in this case you had the highest court in the land choosing to define whiteness in a way that brought the result that the justices were looking for right in both cases Mm. so you accept what the racial science of the time says when it helps you exclude the Japanese man from citizenship, the idea that right. being white means being Caucasian, and you reject that same science when you want to exclude the, the guy from India. And, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the idea that that the definition of whiteness has evolved over time as well, not just, you know, <laughs> one year apart in the case of those two Supreme Court cases, but over decades, and the idea that certain ethnicities weren't considered white at one time and later got admitted to the club, Italians, Slavs, Jews, and famously the Irish. Um, by the way, one of my grandmothers was Irish. But when I interviewed uh, Nell Irvin Painter, 
the historian, she made a very interesting point about this idea that I think a lot of people would be interested in. Um, she disagrees with uh, the guy who wrote how, how the Irish Became White, Noel Ignatiev. But because uh, he, and she, so yeah, because he, his argument is the Irish weren't white. And right. then over time, through a variety of processes, they, they gained access to whiteness and became white. Right. That's implied in the title, right? That they became white. And Dr. Painter says, no, the Irish were always white. And mm -hmm. so were Jews and, and these other groups that I've mentioned. They were just in, in that time in, say, early 20th century America, they were just the wrong kind of white. She says that it really, this kind of what she calls a toggle switch or the whiteness toggle switch where you're either fully white or you're not, that came later, but in the early 20th century, people didn't think of it that way. They talked about the Jewish race, for example, and said anti-Semites said nasty things about the Jewish race, but that was not the same as saying that Jews aren't white. And she says she makes, I think, a very powerful argument for this. And I think you'll like this, change because of how you have, from the start, you want us to focus on power dynamics and who gets rights and resources, not just, you know, how people feel and think about things. And Nell Painter says, if you want to know who was white at any given time, look at who got to vote, right? Especially at least the, uh, the men, right, before women got the vote. Irish people were looked down on, sometimes viciously, by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but the Irish sure as hell got to vote. Um, unlike some other people we could mention who were really considered not white and were completely excluded from the political process in large parts of the country. And so because the Irish had that power, she says, before long they were able to get patronage jobs, such as the stereotypical Irish cop, you know, in New York or Boston. And before much longer, you got the stereotypical Irish politician. And of course, you know, now everybody wants to claim their 116th Irishness and wear green on St. Patty's Day. But, that, you know, that path was not available to the people who were truly not considered white 100 years ago um, and more, you know, especially, of course, black people. Absolutely. And it's a really good point that you're calling attention to, because I think that when you look at the early years of this country and, you know, even in you know, the early 20th century, there's a tendency to conflate all of the different oppressed kinds of folks together, right? As people who just didn't, because really for the majority of this country, as we said, most people didn't really have access. The majority of people didn't have access to uh, full kind of human and civil rights. So you can conflate them, but it is important to talk about these differences and how folks were offered particular incentives and particular opportunities and it's really it's just so hard to quantify the effect of that right what is the effect of those people not being able to participate in the political process and shape mm -hmm. shape the laws what is the what is the overall cumulative effect of not just the wealth laws people talk about the lack of yeah. being able to lose wealth or not maximize wealth i'm talking about just the economic survival right and how that functions, um, what that does to people. So it's just really the impact of that over the, over the over a long time. I mean, and, and it, in a way, it takes you back to Thin and Ozawa. You understand why they were trying to go through these maneuvers and these changes. 
I mean, it just says so so much, right? That somebody comes from another country and it kind of, as as you said, sort of looks around and says, "Okay, I get how this works here. You definitely want to be white in this country." What was so weird is people coming into the country are looking and going, "Okay, there's a club I got to get into, right?" But yeah. or a cult, as that one scholar puts it in his piece. <laughs> I thought, wow. I thought I thought of you, Chenjerai, when I heard that. I thought, oh, wow. whiteness is now a cult. It's a cult. Wow. Right? We're, oh, I said man. technology. I think that's more benign. But yeah. You, you, <laughs> yeah. You, can, you know. I think I'll take but, that one. I'll take that but, option. <laughs> but you know, yeah. People are like, I want to get into this, and the people who already are in see themselves as individuals because. And really, I think that you you have really pointed this out and helped me to understand this more clearly, the way in which being an individual is one of the key components of whiteness, right? Hmm. Of like white, yeah. of white subjectivity. Is that too big of a word? <laughs> it's like of white. No, no. <laughs> you know, we like a just the experience, here. the experience of living as white is a, is a lot about being an individual and to even be lumped into the group. That's what that's I think that's part of why when you call someone white, part of the injury is not just that whiteness is understood to be evil or exploitative or whatever, but also just like you're putting me in a group. I'm not a part of a group. I'm me. I'm an individual, you know. Exactly. It's it's interesting. So the people who have whiteness, they're like individuals. Other people look at it and go, "Oh, I got to get into that club." You know, <laughs> to, so I can be a so I can be a full human. Dr. Chenjerai Kumanika. The editor of our Seeing White series is Ms. Loretta Williams. Stay tuned. Next episode, a personal story of mine, that time I got held up at knife point by a teenager in Philadelphia. Whiteness and blackness, danger and violence, the myths and realities. Music in this episode by Sometimes Why, Kevin McLeod. Lee Rosevere, and Blue Dot Sessions. You're warmly invited to follow Scene on Radio on Facebook and Twitter. I tend to tweet about the sorts of things we explore on the show, race, class, social justice, sometimes politics when I can't help myself. The website is sceneonradio.org. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.